it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Hello, my name is Jamel Hill. And while you may have seen me playing the feisty badass reporter on Power Book 2, or as the easily impressed reporter on Luke Cage, or the mouthy reporter in the film National Champions, I'm actually not an actor. I just happen to play myself in television shows and on film. Despite my inability to play someone other than myself, I understand how to put on good theater. And that's the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Now, I knew there was a high possibility of some clown shit going down during Supreme Court nominee Kentanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings. But I was hoping and I don't know why I let myself hope. But I was hoping that there would at least be a minimal amount of clown shit. And during day one of her confirmation hearings, of course, it was maximum clown shit, starting with Kentucky Senator Marsha Blackburn. You have praised the 1619 Project, which argues the U.S. is a fundamentally racist country. And you have made clear that you believe judges must consider critical race theory when deciding how to sentence criminal defendants. Is it your personal hidden agenda to incorporate critical race theory into our legal system? These are answers that the American people need to know. Only thing Senator Blackburn was missing was a red nose and big floppy ass shoes. And then there was Senator Blackburn's partner in clownery, Senator Josh Howley of Missouri, who tried to paint Judge Jackson as a pedophile sympathizer. And what concerns me, and I've been very candid about this, is that in every case, in each of these seven, Judge Jackson handed down a lenient sentence that was below what the federal guidelines recommended and below what prosecutors requested. And so I think there's a lot to talk about. There there. certainly is. Ding, ding, ding. Howley and Blackburn win the top stupidity prize by mentioning the right's favorite straw men, although they weren't the only ones. Critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and pedophilia. I mean, judging by how often critical race theory and the 1619 Project came up, you would have thought Judge Jackson actually wrote that shit. Not only was Senator Blackburn's attack racist, but it was ironic considering the entire point of critical race theory is examined by legal scholars in studying how racism impacts public policy, which is actually something that a highly qualified legal mind like Judge Jackson should actually take into consideration, as should all judges. As we've seen, the attacks on critical race theory and these baseless accusations that is being taught in K through 12 is white America's gutless attempt to erase people of color and the LGBTQ plus communities. The party that's supposedly anti-cancel culture wants to ban books and critical thinking. As for Judge Jackson being soft on pedophiles, well, I know that 
lobbing that out there made Josh Hawley the QAnon politician of the month. Allow me to dispel his utter bullshit. Before her confirmation hearing, Howley set the table for his nonsense by tweeting, Judge Jackson has said that some people who possess child porn are in this for either the collection or the people who are loners and find status in their participation in the community. What community would that be? The community of child exploiters? Senator Howley, because he's a bonehead, of course, left out a very important fact. That wasn't Judge Jackson's opinion. That was a follow-up question she asked a witness who had spoken of an online community. Howley also tweeted, Judge Jackson has opined there may be a type of less serious child pornography offender whose motivation is not sexual, but is the challenge or to use the technology. A less serious child porn offender? Not included in his lying ass tweet. That Judge Jackson was asking a question in response to a surprising testimony from a witness. Again, not her actual opinion. Now, Judge Jackson is a member of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, whose goal is to reduce sentence disparities. One of the issues this group has studied is mandatory minimums, which, of course, disproportionately impacts black people. Howley tried to push the perception that Judge Jackson was a liberal judge who wants child predators to go free or to get a sentence that isn't that harsh. When in fact, the sentencing commission that she's a member of is bipartisan and includes a judge that Donald Trump nominated to be a federal district judge in 2017. Now, Howley wasn't a senator then, but best believe all the Republicans supported that nomination and nary one of them said that she was soft on child predators. Besides, shouldn't Josh Howley be somewhere helping insurrectionists plan another attack? Because I'm old enough to remember him damn near chest bumping the folks who were storming the Capitol. Interesting that he claims to be concerned with Judge Brown's record when it comes to sex offenders. Because he daps up one all the time. Congressman Matt Getz, who is being investigated for having sex with a 17-year-old for money. Republicans are reaching because they don't have shit on this woman. And if she's confirmed, she already will be the most qualified justice on the bench. And that is not hyperbole. That is a fact. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham is trying to act like Judge Jackson is some unhinged judge when just last year... Mm, Let me check my notes here. Just last year. Oh, yes. He was one of three Republicans to confirm her to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, the nation's second highest court. Unfortunately, what we will see in these confirmation hearings are white conservatives throwing out every racist dog whistle in their playbook because they are just performing for the white folks who want to believe that Judge Jackson is just some charity case who isn't qualified to be on the Supreme Court. It's all theater. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today was simply minding her business, being moisturized and carefree when somebody on Facebook questioned the outfit she wore while on the sidelines coaching her basketball team. Her outfit went viral and she even got a shout out from Nicki Minaj as well as a bunch of other celebrities. It sparked a conversation mostly about how people need to stop policing black women. 
And while that is the reason many people came to know her, there is so much more to know about her. Her aspiring to be a head women's basketball coach, a position that at the Division I college level is still largely held by white men. She has had a long love affair with basketball, having played in the WNBA and overseas in Latvia and Israel. We're going to talk about her incredible journey and what the future holds. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Texas A&M's player development coach and assistant recruiting coordinator, Sydney Carter. So, Sydney, thank you so much for joining me. I know this is right before as we're taping this right before the NCAA tournament is about to begin. So I know as a coach, you are knee deep rather in the thick of it. So I want to start by asking you a question that I ask every guest that appears on the podcast. Uh, when did you become unbothered? The day I was born, actually. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. She's like, uh, I'm unbothered by blood, not relation. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Yeah. I mean, I think I was born into unbotheredness, honestly, just because, you know, I had a mom that raised me to be independent and to be confident um, and to be myself. She taught me that I, I'm i all I got at the end of the day and family's all you got at the end of the day. Um, but I've just never been somebody that has truly cared uh, about what people think or say about me because in, in high school, you know, girls talk and they, they want your boyfriend in, in high school and everything. And so, you know, that it's always been a thing where people have always not liked something about me. And I'm pretty sure everybody can say that, but it's, it's been my whole life. So no wonder you handled everything so gracefully, because uh, for people who are unaware, Sydney found herself in the middle of a controversy that should not have been a controversy at all based off an outfit choice that you wore. I believe it was uh, you guys' game against Kentucky, correct? Yes. I guess shout out to them for winning the SEC um, recently. But you posted a picture of yourself wearing some what I thought to be wonderful pink leather pants, a white turtleneck, these gorgeous heels. You look great in my opinion, but a man named Wayne Walker posted what you wore on social media and asked people if your outfit was appropriate because clearly he did not think that it was. Now, the pink, correct me if I'm wrong, was related to breast cancer awareness. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. So you were wearing the pink for a good cause, number one. Mm -hmm. But then there was this great debate about what is appropriate for women to wear, particularly one that's in the position of being a coach of young women. So how did you learn that there was a debate about your outfit going on on social media? Um, so, well, I got onto Instagram just like I normally did. I mean, just like I said, a lot of times, this is something that I have always done. I've always posted my outfits and I've never done it for attention or anything like that. I just did it because I like to, uh, I like to dress. Um, so I posted my photo and then a couple of days later, I'm starting to see my Instagram followers and everything is just doing numbers. And so I'm like, what is going on? And then I don't have a Facebook. So my family's like, well, this guy has posted this and they sent the screenshot in our family chat. And so that's when I learned like, okay, it's going viral. Um, and then after, after I saw it that day, this may have been like maybe two days later, a day and a half later. And then after that, it really took off where like my DMS are going crazy where people are like, I want to do an interview. I want to do this. I want to, you know, like people are just reaching out by the numbers. And so, I was just shocked that it took off like that because I'm like, I didn't do anything wrong. Like, what is this even a discussion about? 
I mean, the way that some people were behaving, they acted like you came to the sideline dressed like, you know, you going to a, a club in Miami. And it's like, it wasn't even that serious. <laughs> and look, I'll just put it out there. I'm not wearing that to the club. So there's that. But I mean, <laughs> nobody wears a turtleneck to the club, to the people. Club. I mean, I'm going to burn up in there. But yeah. when I did the Good Morning America, they had told me some of the stuff that people had said because I made sure that I didn't pay attention to the negative comments uh, because. I've always heard celebrities say, I stay sane by staying out of the comments. Um, and so that's how big it got so quickly. So I stayed out of the comments, but I saw stuff like she looks like she's going to the club or she needs to be fined or she's not going to get respected. And I'm just like, okay, I guess you guys, I guess you guys know it all at this point. So, well, maybe not in this viral of a fashion, but have you ever something you've worn ever drawn? you know, some attention because based off your Instagram feed, like you're very stylish. Like, <laughs> I mean, you, you could dress this, you could dress. So ha have your outfits ever created any kind of conversation at all before this? Not on social media. Okay. So when I wore, I wore a green houndstooth print pantsuit top and bottom to our South Carolina game. I think it was game 16 on my Instagram, but I had so many people coming up to me just before the game even started because I typically walk out to do you know my whole deal before the game and I had people come up to me like girl where'd you get that suit from I, I need the, I need the answers on that so I've gotten stuff like at games we've played people have always asked me but never anything like this where it's gone to a point where people felt like they could give their opinion on it or or pose questions about what I'm wearing I've never gotten that yeah, I know you tried to stay out of the comments, but uh, I got all in the comments and I couldn't help but notice that <laughs> one of the comments came from Nicki Minaj. <laughs> so how did that feel to see somebody obviously of her level of fame suddenly drawn to your story? At first, I, I my comments were going so crazy that I missed somebody actually posted it on their story and sent it to me in a DM. And so I'm like, oh, I got to hurry up and go to my Instagram so I can pin this. I don't want to miss this. Um, so I went to it and it just it warmed my heart just because Nicki Minaj has always been one of my favorites. I've been a Nicki fan. I've been a Barb, whatever you want to call it, for the longest, you know, since she was underground. Um, so to see her speak out and we kind of have the same like she's she thrives off of confidence. She doesn't care what people think. You know, she kind of has the same stance that I have, you know, on just being unapologetically myself. So to see her actually stand up and say something and it, it was I mean, it's not a small thing for her to come to my page and comment but she didn't have to. And so that's the biggest thing for me is that a lot of people that have had my back and supported me didn't have to say anything. And they did. So all the support that I got, I knew that that's what I could give my energy to instead of giving it to the, the negative comments that, that people are going to have, regardless of what I have on or not. Yeah, so speaking of people who had your back, what was the response from uh, your coach, Gary Blair, who you, you play for, and also the players on the team that look at you in, as an authority figure? Yeah. So Coach Blair, he's always told me from day one. I mean, I was posting people don't realize if you go to my Instagram, I was posting my outfits just even last year. Um, and so Coach Blair always tells me you dress for success all the time. And he loves the way that I dress. Um, you know, he's never had a complaint. He's never said anything about, hey, don't like that outfit. He's always admired that. I wear what I wear and I look nice in it because he appreciates somebody that likes to look nice because he is going to wear his pantsuit every game. He's going to have his tie on. Um, so he's always said, whether the other coaches want to dress up or not, you make sure you wear what you want to wear. 
Um, so he told me that last year. And um, as far as our players go, I mean, every time I come out, they they come around the corner before a game and they like, let me see what you got on. And they call me, they always say, look at the baddest. So, um, <laughs> so they, they're always hyping me up every game. They're always, you know, just looking forward to what I have on and you'll see pictures. there, like bowing down to me saying that I'm, I'm best dressed or, you know, so they, they love it because they can relate to that. Um, you know, I'm still young at the end of the day, so they can relate to my sense of fashion and, you know, they, they enjoy having somebody that they can directly relate to that, that had, they, they, you know, they, they want to dress, some of them want to dress like me. Um, so I got obviously good feedback from our AD, uh, Ross Bjork that's here, um, our SWA, Kristen Brown, they, they've always told me how nice that they think I dress. So, I mean, it's been a year long thing of support from my university. So that's why it didn't bother me. <laughs> so, you know, the major question is, has this led to a clothing deal? I know you're really into Adidas, but like somebody got to put you on now. <laughs> I mean, I hope it does. I've had a lot of people reach out, send stuff my way. Um, you know, I've had from sunglasses to pantsuits um, to custom made um, like blazers. Uh, so a lot of people have sent me things, but it, it hasn't led to a deal yet. But I'm hoping, you know, somebody like Adidas or something reaches out because even in practice, um, you know, before the season even started, some of them would be like, you so extra because I would wear a pink skirt to practice with some colorful shoes, ruffled socks, like and everything is just Adidas down. Um, so I'm hoping Adidas sees this and calls me. <laughs> Put her on Adidas. Um, you know, I, I noticed in my years covering um, women's sports, it was the first beat that I had as a professional that female athletes in particular the scrutiny is almost like you can't win I've certainly heard from fans and not that these opinions are remotely valid in either direction about how they wish female athletes were more feminine and then when you are feminine then it's oh you're being too feminine you look too much like you're not serious so I guess as both a player and a coach like how are you able to get comfortable when you know that you can't win either way I mean, I think it's just a matter of just being confident with yourself, you know, like at the end of the day, you have to understand that people are going to say something as women. We're never going to satisfy anybody just because of what you said. You people say they don't watch women's basketball because of the product we're putting out there is not girly enough. But then if the product is girly enough, y'all are saying, well, we don't dunk like the men or we don't do this. So like there's no there's no baseline for anybody when it comes to just policing women on what we do, whether it's sports, what we wear, how we talk, what jobs we can have, you know, in a male dominated job uh, world or whatever. So I got to be confident in myself because at the end of the day, when I go home, I got to answer to me. And if I allow somebody to say, if I, if I look at those negative comments and now I got people changing how I dress just because they said something because they felt uncomfortable, or maybe they're upset that they can't wear it or they don't look the same. I'm sorry that I'm not sorry that that's a problem for them and not for me. I can't live my life based on what other people think about me because people are always going to have their opinions. It's a free country. You can say what you want. But from your first question, I've been unbothered since the day I was born. So I'm going to have that confidence to understand that I am comfortable with me. I sleep well at night knowing that I do what I please because I can't. Now, did this lead to some good conversations with with your players? I mean, they I'm sure a lot of them do have a lot of confidence. But what do you think they learned from watching how you dealt with all of this? 
Um, I just think that they were inspired to continuously be themselves. I think when you think about college athletes, a lot of them are scared to be themselves in the sense of, you know, embracing whatever their sexuality is or embracing their uniqueness. If they dress a certain way, maybe somebody's from New York and their style is different and they they come to Texas and everybody's looking like, well, what you got on? You know, you never know. Um, you know, what somebody's dealing with as far as like really embracing themselves. And obviously you hear a lot of stuff about just like the, the mental, the mental health these days on with people. Um, so I think a lot of people are inspired, especially my team to continuously be themselves. And I think that they know when they're around me, it's not a gimmick. I really mean what I say when you can be yourself around me because I'm going to be myself. So I think a lot of them took away that is just they're inspired that they can be themselves and they can be comfortable being that around me. And I'm going to embrace that and love on them and continue to pour into them every day because I believe in that. One of the best things that I saw related to this was a little girl who dressed just like you. <laughs> her name was Rose. Rose. That was her name, Rose. I also saw some older women who were dressing exactly like you. Now, I'm. is your attitude, okay, every game I'm going to give y'all something to talk about since y'all want to talk? It's never not been that. It never was like, okay, I'm going to give y'all something to talk about. It's, I'm wearing this and I know I look good. So it's always been that. But now... I still haven't felt that it's going to be okay. So y'all want to talk about this? Wait till I give you this. It's never been that just because I've always been fashion and my passion, which is basketball have always gone hand in hand. So it it wasn't going to change just because I went viral and people had something good and something bad to say that there, there hasn't been no drop off, but people have been like, well, ever since, you know, she went viral. She's been stepping on next. I was stepping on next since I since I got the job last year. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and I hope that this is a, a good lesson, particularly for the men folk who may be listening. Please stay out of women's business. Like just, and I'm not saying that all the comments came from men, but this started from a man policing your outfit. And when I used to do Sports Center at ESPN. Most of the comments that I got about my makeup, my hair, or my clothes were from yeah. men. And uh, yeah, I'm just like, y'all got a lot of time on your hand to pay attention to things, you know. You said that fashion has always been something that you're passionate about. Now, I know you were a college student, probably not as much disposable income, but how did your interest in fashion develop? I, I honestly would take it all the way back to when I was in elementary school, um, because when I was in the third grade, my mom wanted me to be a model. And so I remember going to try to be a just for me model, you know, the perm back in the day. Oh, I remember. (laughs) And and so she wanted me to be a model because I had a lot of hair. And so I went to go try out for it, but I was missing my two front teeth when they told me to smile. So I didn't get the gig, but I, my mom bought me a pair of like knee high age appropriate boots back then. And I never wanted to take them off. So I was wearing the boots every day to school. And my teacher nicknamed me boots because of that, because I was wearing them every day. Um, so I, it even just goes back to that. Um, and, and when I was in the fifth grade, I had a pair. Oh, my God. Uh, I had a pair of sky blue wedge heels that I would wear to school. And I was playing basketball in them on the blacktop with the guys. Um, but I've always just I take my fashion sense from there because from that day, I've been wanting to wear heels just, you know, from that point on at such a young age. And so, you know, my passion came, you know, as early as that. Um, and it's just stuck with me. Obviously, when I was in college, I, I didn't have the finances to be able to rock, you know, what the type of stuff that I'm rocking now. But dunks when I was in college were like 
40 bucks. And now the sneakerheads have got to them and they're like 170. Um, but you know, I was wearing dunks and stuff back then when they weren't popular. Um, but I, I've just always had my own fashion since, since I was a kid. Um, and I just think that it's, I mean, it's never going to go away because I've, I've just done it at such a young age. You know, basketball is obviously something that you played your whole life. So how did you get drawn into to basketball? When did that love affair start? Um, I was four years old and I am one. I'm the fifth of seven kids in my family. And so I had older brothers and sisters that played sports. My brother was a great football player. All my sisters played basketball. Um, So when I was four, my mom just kind of stuck me out there in the YMCA in Dallas, Texas and on an all boys team. And I was the fastest thing out there. I mean, I probably never took a dribble in a game because I was just running up and down with the ball. Uh, but my mom saw that I was I had a work ethic at that that young age. I mean, I was outside playing basketball in our little driveway, just wanting to play against the boys so that I could like I thought I, back then, obviously, when you're a kid, you don't know that you can't play with the boys when you get older. So from the age of four, my mom put me in it. And as I got older, she put me in other sports. I was really good in volleyball. It's good in track because I was fast, but basketball, just, I knew that I was passionate about that. That's where I was really good. And that's where I really excelled. Um, so, I mean, it's just been something that I've been doing since I was four. And nobody should be surprised that you have such a, a very mature perspective and mature is probably not the word that I'm looking for because I do find that there's a different mentality among defensive specialists, which you were when you were in college. Like y'all just have a different way of looking at things. Yes. I'm sure when you went to college, I mean, you probably didn't imagine that that would become your role. So how did you sort of embrace being such an incredible defender in college? You know, I have to credit it to our defensive coach, Coach uh, Vic Schaefer, who's at Texas now. He's the head coach. But I, I always had it in my mind. Uh, when I came in, I was, I mean, I, I used my speed and my athleticism uh, to get by in high school, but I knew that when I came here, I was going to be playing behind a Sidney Colson, um, a Takia Starks. I was following in the footsteps of an Aquanisha Franklin, um, who's a Hall of Famer. So I knew right off the bat, I probably wasn't going to be playing. So in my head, I'm thinking to myself, what can I do to separate myself and give whatever is not being given in other areas. What, what is Sydney Colson not doing? What is, you know, what is the person in front of me not doing? How can I do that? Be great at it so that I give coach Blair no option, but to be able to play me. Um, because I was just never satisfied with saying, okay, freshman year, I'm just going to use this as a learning experience. I knew my best experience was going to come from playing. Um, so I, I needed to separate myself. And so I just dug in coach Schaefer coach with such an intensity. And I knew I wanted to play for somebody like that because he pushed me to levels I didn't know I had. Um, and, and being a leader, it's like you can never have an off day. But I knew defense was effort every day. If I got to be here, I'm going to give everything that I have. And so what better way to do that on the defensive end? Because a coach can't coach effort at the end of the day. So I didn't want to ever let somebody down thinking they had to coach my effort. So every day was just a grinded out day for me. I just I never felt like I needed to take a day off because people were watching. My, my teammates depended on it. Who was going to be the player to guard their, the other team's best player? I wanted it to be me, period, because I want to say I got to stop. 
as somebody who regularly interacts with young people, you coach young people, you're uh, an assistant recruiting coordinator. So you're always in young people's homes, you're around them, and you're still a a young person (laughs) Um, yourself. That attitude of, you know, that you had of that you were going to find something that would make you stand out, that you weren't just going to sulk and say, oh, I can't be the star or I can't get ahead of these other players that are really good in front of me. I'm going to instead reinvent myself because there's this perception that athletes aren't really built that way anymore. What have you found as somebody who interacts with young people about their desire to maybe do the little things in order to succeed? I think these days people are reached differently and you got to realize how you can reach them. Right. So I think not everybody is going to be like coach Schaefer could yell at me and say whatever he wanted to. And at the end of the day, like it was going to make me go harder because I was afraid to disappoint him. Um, So I think when you find a way to reach people, how they need to be reached to be able to pull the best out of them. I think that's important as a coach or just somebody that is mentoring a young person, um, you know, in, in whatever aspect of life you're trying to mentor them in doesn't have to necessarily be sports, but it's very important to realize some, some, some people need to be loved on some people, um, you know, can take the tough love. Somebody can, can be critiqued really hard. Um, so I just think that it's important to really learn, build relationships with people and then see how you can reach them to be able to pull the best out of them. Now, obviously you being a coach is assuming your ultimate goal being a head coach, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, with your own playing career, your professional playing career, you know, once uh, you left A&M, now you played in the WNBA for four years. You spent some more time playing in Europe. Was there a moment that you knew that this was the end of the road for you in terms of playing professionally? And what was that moment? Or maybe it was moments. I mean, like, how did you know it was time for you to kind of move on? Um, yeah, so I got hurt my last year playing overseas, which I think was leading into 2018. Um, I played my last game overseas in Israel, I think, New Year's Eve on 2017. So my last game was in 2017. But um, I got hurt maybe a year before that, and I just never got better. Uh, so I started to come back to A&M and rehab, um, and it was it was tough. What was your injury? I had a full meniscus, uh, did stem cell and uh, plasma injections in my knee, which was probably the most grueling thing I've ever been through. Uh, but it was... 11 months off completely because I was getting the injections every month and I couldn't really do anything. I mean, I I couldn't even walk on concrete because of the change of surface. Uh, So I was very, very limited on what I could do. So I was really tested mentally. uh, And it was, it was really hard. I went through a really uh, dark place in my life, just being depressed because I didn't have something that I had all my life, which was basketball. So as I was getting back into working out, I started to get back in shape, game shape and and workout shape, two different things. I'm getting ready at A&M to try to get back into playing at the end of 2018. And um, my overseas team calls and I start working out. I start doing the workouts. And then I'm thinking to myself, I just know that I'm not ready to go play in a game. And it was at that moment, I'm like, maybe it's time to retire. Uh, So I battled with it for the longest. And then I prayed about it. And I knew that it was time because I had a peace about it and a peace that I couldn't explain. And I would talk to my mom and she would she my mom would be sad because every day I'm crying and I'm like, just want to play. And so finally, when I just had a peace about moving on to the next part of my life, um, I knew that I was making the right decision because at that point, I didn't want to do what it took anymore to get back to the level of playing professionally. And I didn't want to cheat the game and cheat myself. 
because the game had given so much to me. I knew it was time to start giving back. Uh, you played in what Latvia and Israel, correct? Yes. Yeah. So what is life like for a black woman in those countries? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have seen love and basketball when she's in the locker room and she's like, Marta, what did he say? And the girl is having to translate. In Latvia, it's definitely like that. I had my one of my teammates play in the States in college. So she was translating everything for me. And literally one time she was like, he said, get Sydney the ball and score. But it's different because you may be the only black person in that country almost. Um, in Latvia, I could remember seeing four black people and I was one of them. And this is not a knock to that country, but there was one time I can remember I lived right next to an elementary school and I'm walking down the sidewalk and a lady grips a hold of her child because black people are just not seen a lot over there. So they probably had no idea why it was over there. Um, but it's it's different. The language barrier, obviously, just live and having to really domesticate yourself. So you may have to learn to cook and bake if you want to eat. Um, so it's it's different. It's definitely not for everybody. But it was something that I truly, truly enjoyed because I learned how to do my nails over there. I learned how to do my own box braids over there. My cooking skills were refined over there. So I learned a couple of languages. I can speak uh, Hebrew pretty well. I know a tad bit of Latvian and Russian. So it's a great experience if you really bask in it, but it's it's definitely not easy. Is it kind of lonely though? Because uh, other than maybe some of your teammates who don't all speak English, obviously aren't from the States. You know, how do you handle kind of that part of it? It's definitely lonely. Um, if you're not a loner, sometimes I can be surprisingly um, as sociable as I am. But it definitely can get lonely um, because, you know, you're missing so many aspects of life as far as what your family like. My, my nephew was born when I was overseas and I remember crying because my sister called me and she's sending me pictures. Um, so you miss so much of just a normal life when you're playing over there. But it, it definitely gets lonely. You feel like sometimes you can't really have a relationship because it's that's a different type of long distance over there. Um, and, you know, somebody may not be able to come visit. Your family may not be able to come visit. Uh, my mom is scared to travel, you know, so she never got to come overseas and see me play. It definitely gets lonely, but I think it's something you learn to get past kind of as the years go by. It never gets easier, but it's something you learn to deal with. Yeah. And for the people listening who are thinking, why would she be in, in Latvia and Israel? It's very common that WNBA players go overseas to play um, during the offseason, quote unquote, from the WNBA or just period, just have overseas professional careers overall. I was going to ask you about the hair. So I'm glad you said I learned to do my own box brace. I'm like, what were you doing? Yeah. I mean, it was taking me about eight so hours to do my own box braids. I learned kind of how to sew my own hair in, which was so hard. It took about 10 hours to do that. So it's, it was hard. <laughs> I feel like there's an untapped reality show to be made about black women who play uh, basketball overseas. There's a whole experience there that I've heard from other players that is, is pretty unique, especially the fact that you, you know, are often not you know, there's not a lot of black people. And when we say not a lot, whatever you think not a lot is in America is way worse over there. It's way worse. And and there's so much pressure on you over there because it's like you got to score, score the basketball. If you're like a point guard or somebody who is pass dominant or pass first, you got to find a way to put up points. And so there's always so much pressure on you. 
Because, of course, people see a black person, they like, OK, she can go get buckets. You know, that's a stereotype. And so it's like, you know, now you got a lot of pressure to go get 30 every game or, you know, you're that people are looking at you like mm, we want to go find something else. You know, so it's you also sometimes I think people feel that pressure of having to be it all the time while you're trying to juggle regular life and, you know, trying to figure out what they say in half the time and when you're going to be able to go home for Christmas break. Like it's it's tough mentally. Before we take a break, I want to ask you this last question. There, there's a scene in Love and Basketball where like just the overall treatment that she receives when she's overseas is much different because there's far more financial investment in women's basketball uh, overseas, at least at the professional level, uh, to some degree than it is in the States. So. I assume that like some people knew who you were just because of the team that you were on. How did they treat you just as a player? Were you treated like a celebrity? Like, how was that? For sure. Definitely treated like a celebrity. I mean, everywhere you go, you have people, um, you know, wanting to wanting you to sign something. People were coming wearing my jerseys to the game, asking for my jerseys after the game. And so I played in Latvia for a couple of years. So what I would do at the end of the season was I would give away my shoes uh, to kids that were outside trying to play basketball but didn't have shoes. I would give away my jerseys, any T-shirts that I had, uh, just because so many people were trying to take them off of my back. Um, so you're definitely you're definitely a celebrity over there. Love and basketball is a perfect description of that, uh, just because it, it really is that way. I gave away a pair of Kobe's that I wish I didn't now. Oh. All right. Well, look, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I definitely want to ask you about just the state of black women coaches uh, now in the NCAA, seeing some good trends and some bad trends. So I want to definitely ask you about that. And some big lotto questions for you as well, because I know that's your girl in addition to Nicki Minaj. So we'll be back. Just going to take a quick break and more with Sydney Carter on the other side. My husband absolutely hates it when I call myself an auntie because he doesn't think it's flattering. I mean, he's not alone in this because neither does Ava DuVernay or esteemed Pulitzer Prize winner Nicole Hannah-Jones. To each their own, but I embrace my auntiness. Don't threaten me with a good time that involves a robe, a bonnet, some yellowtail Chardonnay, some good gossip, and watching my stories. And I got a story to tell about my latest auntie adventure. Attending the Culture Tour, which featured Jodeci, Uncle Charlie, excuse me, first name Charlie, last name Wilson, and New Edition. When I tell y'all I got my whole life. Now, a few weeks back, I went to see Silk Sonic, and that was magical. Bruno and Anderson Pac tore that stage up. It's a cookout. It's potato salad and red Solo cups. It's styrofoam plates filled with food folding tables, and chairs and spades. It's Frankie Beverly and Evelyn Champagne King being played all day and all night, and the elders arguing about who makes the best ribs. But Jodeci, Uncle Charlie, New Edition, that was bigger than a cookout. That was a cultural revolution that took you back to the moments in time that still make you smile and your heart flutter. That concert was Falling asleep on the phone, talking to a crush, hitting him up with that you up every few minutes after dead silence on the phone. That concert was kissing your write on posters that you had taped to the wall. It was your mama throwing an impromptu house party 
with the record player going all night long with the smell of fried chicken and Jean Nate permeating the air. It was ear hustling as your mama was on the phone with one of her good girlfriends gossiping about some married man that so-and-so was pushing up on or your mama talking about some man trouble she might have had in her own life. It was that slow high school grind at the homecoming dance, that forever love feeling that really only lasted for maybe two good months. But that shit felt like everything. Listen, I sang every song from top to bottom, from Jodeci to New Edition. My voice is still hoarse because I sang so much at this concert. This was the Auntie Cella I've been waiting for. This was Auntie Khan. This was aunties assembling like the Avengers. As soon as concert dates were announced, I should have immediately invested in Yellowtail, Chardonnay, and Moscato. There were so many moments in this concert from seeing Uncle Charlie, who is 750 years old, has had two knee surgeries, but he was still doing his thing. This was endless oh yes from Casey. But probably my favorite moment of them all was seeing New Edition together, all of them together on stage. It wasn't that long ago that that seemed impossible because of all the drama. But my guys took us through the whole catalog from Candy Girl to Can You Stand the Rain to Hit Me Off. And as someone who grew up loving their music and knowing the backstory, it just felt good to see all of them supporting each other in a true brotherhood. So much of the strife within the group has been about balancing individual ambition with group success, but they did a masterful job of displaying both. Johnny broke out and did my, my, my. And I swear my girl, Annie, who I went with, was on the verge of throwing her panties. You know, Johnny also gave us some fair weather friend, rub you the right way. Bobby gave us my prerogative, every little step, Roni rock with you. And of course, BBD did poison, do me, tell me when will I see you smile again. Ralph performed sensitivity. It just made me truly appreciate and be in awe of how much talent is in this group. Anyway, Auntie Nation, the People's Republic of Aunties, Auntie Voltron, and even you uncles and big cousins. Go see the culture tour if it comes to your town. And now back to more with Sydney Carter. We were talking about your coaching aspirations uh, before the break and some numbers I'm sure you're aware of, but for the people listening who might not be aware of. So right now, as it stands, 82 percent of women's coaches at the D1, D2 and D3 level are are white. I still call it Division One. I. I just will never get used to FBS and SES. Almost 50 percent of the players that Power five schools are black women, yet black women account for less than 15 percent of those head coaching positions. However, the SEC has five black women who are head coaches out of the 14 schools in the SEC. From your uh, vantage point, as you're just kind of getting your career started in, in coaching, what are some of the obstacles that you still see that black women are facing as they try to become head coaches in the NCAA? Um, well, I think it's just the the usual pattern, right, of I think everybody's on a, such a short leash, you know, like if we get a job, we're expected to turn it around immediately, you know, whereas other people get more of a leeway. They may have a losing record or something, you know, for a few years, whereas if it's you, you're looking like, OK, I got to hurry up and turn things around because my job may be on the line. So I think, unfortunately, that's what I see the most is that the lease is show, so short, but the SEC is doing a fantastic job of that. I mean, we just had 
two black women in the SEC championship game that have taken their programs to major heights. I mean, Kyra Elsey was the interim head coach and then became head coach. And look what she's done with Kentucky and winning the SEC championship yesterday. Dawn has, I mean, look at her. She's she's done it as a player and as a coach and turned them into the monsters from Space Jam. <laughs> um, so I think I think those, the slogan for the SEC, is it just means more. And I think the SEC is doing more in that regard because they're giving black women a chance and the leash is not as short, uh, you know, where they're giving them a chance to build their programs up to show what we really can do, not only as players, but as somebody that has now stepped into the coaching world and is giving back in that manner. You brought up Dawn Staley, who um, <laughs> I'm old enough. I remember when she was a player, but she signed, I thought, another important piece or component to her story. She signed a $22 million contract extension with South Carolina uh, last October, right before this this season started. What message did that send to see her get that kind of money from South Carolina? I think Dawn is the epitome of if you can see her, you can be her. She did it as a player. She's doing it as a coach. I think it's just a testament to what she has been able to do, the work that she's put in. So that to me, just shows that that's what should have happened. You know, like, I think a lot of people would have been surprised had it not happened just because of what she's done. I mean, when I was in college, she was there at South Carolina, um, but you didn't, they, they weren't what they are now. So I think she said a quote the other day, a lot of people see what you've done when you're at the top, but they don't see what it took to get you there. Something along those lines. So I think Don is a testament to the type of work that you put in and then the reward when when you actually put the time in. So she just is somebody when when I look at what I want to be. She's a great example of that because I it's not even about the money for me. I just want to be able to get to the pinnacle of success that she's gotten to. And the great thing is, is that I know Dawn is not satisfied. She's going to keep being thirsty for what she has built because she's going to try to keep making it better. If if there is even a thing, because <laughs> they are so good. <laughs> they are. Um, but I thought even though I felt, you know, of course, you you feel a little bad for her. Well, you probably don't feel a little bad for her for losing, you know, but I think it's I still do. Yeah. OK, but it's still a great story for women's basketball. Right. Like because you have Kentucky and emerging power in this space and you have another black woman who's able to show like, look at what we can do. Uh, you were talking about when you were a player. Now, as a player, you won a national championship and. People need to understand you won a national championship at a time where a school like Texas A&M wasn't supposed to be winning a national championship. You know, UConn was still very dominant. You had Notre Dame, very dominant. How often do you think about that incredible year, that run? And, you know, what have you told your players about it? I mean, that year was just destiny. You know, it. So many people counted us out. I mean, I can remember going to the Final Four and doing the the pregame pressers, you know, a couple of days before the Final Four games had actually started. And we didn't get asked a lot of questions because everybody kept saying, y'all are the Cinderella. And we were like, y'all come to a practice. We ain't no none. The shoe been fitting. Okay. Um, so just going up against a Stanford, which I thought that year Stanford was the best team coming into the final four. I mean, so UConn still had Maya Moore, Tiffany Hayes, they still had a squad. But Stanford to me was playing the best. And we had just got through playing Brittany Griner, having beat them after playing them four times that year. 
going in to have to play Stanford. So, you know, I just think that we really put our school on the map and it was good for the world to see somebody else on top because, you know, at at a certain point you get to think if I don't go to UConn or Notre Dame or Stanford, I'm not going to win. And so I think it was important and good for basketball for them to see that other schools out there are doing what it takes to try to reach that pinnacle um, to get their schools to where UConn is, to where Stanford is. Um, and so, you know, I have a really big picture uh, in the uh, our practice gym of me celebrating in the Stanford game. And I tell, I, you know, I tell our kids all the time just what it took for me to get there, how I didn't complain, how my team didn't complain, how we played together. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I tell them from that year are just tips on how to be good teammates, because if you don't have a team, you can't. I mean, you're not going to make it to the conference tournament, let alone a final four. By March, you got to be working as a machine. And so that's what I try to tell my team. You know, it's interesting because looking at how the women's game uh, has evolved. I mean, I think people do recognize this, particularly those who have been longtime fans, but even those who are just sort of peeping in and, and are a little bit more casual. What I see, the, the speed, the athleticism, the versatility from players now, my first year as a reporter was 1997 as a professional, and I was covering women's basketball then. I was covering um, NC State, Carolina, and uh, Duke. Right. And so because I think Duke had a lot of beer then. I think that was their big player. Chastity <laughs> Melvin was still playing then because that's how old I am. And, um, you know, those were they were great players, obviously. And then 97 was the first year of the WNBA. But looking at where the game was then to now, it's just like it's unbelievable. The growth. Then you thought you would never see Tennessee lose. You nothing. You would never see UConn lose. And I look at all these teams now that, uh, you know, you have South Carolina. Of course, Stanford is still there. Kentucky, all these emerging teams, you all, a and I mean, you guys have, have kind of been there. Arizona, like these are names that were not mentioned during that time. So, I mean, I guess when you look at the growth from even when you were a player until now, what's kind of some of the biggest changes you've seen with how the game has evolved? Man, uh, so many things, but I think the most glaring thing is just the athleticism, right? So, like, if you look at the WNBA, John Quill Jones is a perfect example of the evolution of the game because she can legitimately play one through five. Um, and she's what, six, six? So when you see that now, you see a lot of post players that are playing. There's no there's a, it's a positionless game almost now where you'll see post players bringing the ball up the floor. Um, a lot of teams try to get to playing positionless basketball where it's like I don't need to look for a traditional one for an outlet. I can bring the ball up as the five player. That was not happening when I was in school. Every time Danielle Adams got the ball, she's looking for Sydney Colson and I to bring the ball up the floor. Um, so I think that that's the the main thing is that you actually see post players. I'm put that in in quotations because you know, like I said, it's it's almost positionless where they're bringing the ball up, they're shooting threes. You know, th- they got step back moves, they they got handles. You're seeing so many aspects of the game in every type of player, no matter the height. Um, and that's that's the the major glaring difference in the game from the time that that it started to now. From a support standpoint, I think women's college basketball has definitely exploded and really both professionally as well. But in terms of the popularity, the investment, but it's still not enough. Like there's no question about it. So where do you see the growth and where do you see support for women's basketball kind of still lacking? 
Well, I do think you still see the growth in the type of product we're putting out there, whether people watch it or not. You know, I think that that's obviously still where we're lacking because a lot of people don't necessarily still give it a chance, but we're putting a better product out there. So you have growth in the type of play that's being uh being done out there, college and WNBA. Uh, But obviously we still haven't gotten the viewership that we would like. It's growing. Last year, you know, you look at the finals viewership numbers, the, the year before that, you're starting to see those numbers go up. But what are the numbers looking like just during the regular season, not just in a series where it's really good basketball? Because there's good basketball being played in the WNBA all summer. There's good basketball being played in the SEC, in the Big Ten, all these conferences during regular seasons, there's still good basketball, but obviously we see numbers go up during tournament time, March Madness time, because those are marketed differently. Whereas in the regular season, it's just, okay, there's a game coming on tonight at seven, you know? So product is better, but we still haven't gotten the viewership to where we need it to. I mean, college basketball, women's college basketball, that that's always going to be, I think, ahead right now of the WNBA. Uh, because people just feel like, you know, once people go to the league, it's like people fall off or something. I, I have no idea, but they don't seem to follow their favorite college players that well to the WNBA, but they're going to continue to watch college. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. Well, I mean, it, it is a little surprising, especially because uh, I'll be frank that there are times and I covered college basketball for six years. There are times when I look at the NBA, where I'm just like, where did that player go to school? I have no idea because they're there for a cup of coffee and they're gone. At least in the women's game, they're there three, maybe four years. So you know exactly who they are by the time they get to the WNBA. And to me, that makes it much easier to follow. I don't know if it's just because of when the WNBA season is. It's purposely during a time where the sports activity professionally is not as high. You know, it's not going up against the NFL or anything like that. But yeah, I think it'll get there. I mean, I definitely think, you know, one of the things that kind of came out of the the bubble was the fact that the viewership for the WNBA was through the roof. And I think that exposed, you know, kind of a, a lot of people to how just how good th- that the product is. I guess uh, as a woman who's grown up in this game, though, is it in some ways still frustrating to still be having the same conversations about support? Yeah, because it's like, we keep getting better and better. And it goes back to the, we can never satisfy anybody. You know, when we actually, y'all say we didn't dunk, well, now we got people dunking. So why don't, you know, why don't we have people watching, you know, our game, you guys watching college and you enjoy the college game. These are the same players playing in the WNBA. So why would you think that there's a drop off there when it's now it's 144 of the best playing in the WNBA. So it's going to be good basketball. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what it is, but it's definitely frustrating to see that we're still having conversations of should we lower the rim? Should we do that? You know, like people are posing so many different questions and it's like, it's just basketball. We're just women. And there's an NBA, there's a WNBA. Just two different genders. The game is still the same. Yeah. And where do you stand on that lowering the rim debate? You know, I don't think I've really ever thought about it. I, I like the rim how it is. So it's, you know, I feel like if you lower it, now we got to adjust shots. And, you know, if you shoot it high, now you're shooting a line drive ball because the, the rim is lower. You know, I don't, I've, I've never just necessarily really thought about it, but I, I don't see a problem with where it is now because we have people reaching those heights that can actually dunk on a regular rim. So what's what's the reason to to lower the rim or to hire it, whatever the 
argument is. Well, that was always my issue is like, who are we lowering it for? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, right. It's not the women who are playing it. <laughs> it's not for them. And it's like your opinion matters more because you actually have to play the game. Although I couldn't help but notice how this year uh, during NBA All-Star Weekend, all everybody could talk about was the three-point contest and how that should be the main event and not the slam dunk. But I, I was like, oh, but I thought y'all said that dunking was what, <laughs> was what women's basketball needed and suddenly y'all out on the dunk. I don't know. I, yeah. I can't keep up with the moving goalposts. I, I can't either. And I actually didn't watch very much of the um, all-star stuff this year because I, I think we were on an away game or something like that. But it, I mean, I'm telling you, you can't can't satisfy people because nothing's ever going to be good enough. So what are the number of times? I mean, I don't know how rich you would be, but if you had a dollar for every time a man thought they could beat you at basketball, how rich would you be? <laughs> I would be retired. <laughs> I would be sitting on a beach somewhere. Resting on my laurels because, uh, you know, I, I mean, I still get it to this day. Obviously, a lot of more people are in my DMs now, but it's like, coach, let me play you one on one. And I'm like, and I know it's only men that are doing this. Yes, it's not, like, women, why? It's not women. But, I, you know, I I have no idea. It's I've been getting it since at least high school when me and my boyfriend, we would play we would play a three-point shooting contest, and he used to get so mad when I did beat him. To this day, he's going to say I never beat him. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, it. I don't, I don't know what it is, but guys, please don't ask me to play. I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I would say don't ask, not just you, please. but any woman that has played, especially professionally or college. I would say either or. It's like, do you know how insulting that is? Like, y'all wouldn't walk up to J.J. Reddick and say, hey, how about we play one-on-one? Like, you would never do that to a male player. Like, yeah. you know, and, and even though it does, uh, Brian Scalabrini, he told these, this great story about how, you know, because he was more of a reserve player, role player, that guys all the time think that they could beat him. Like guys that just LA fitness once a week, like feel like they can really beat a professional. I don't think they understand how good you all are, but it's women get this especially worse, you know, cause every guy who's sitting on the couch thinks that they can beat you. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what, like, it, it, like you said, it's kind of an insult. We know we, they don't mean it that way, but when you look at it, big picture, it's kind of like, you only asking me because I'm a woman. Cause you think you can beat me. Because it's not, that's not what it is. This ain't that, you know, that's what the kids say these days. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I never take it as an insult. But when you look at it, it's it kind of is because it's like, like you said, y'all ain't going to ask LeBron to play the one-on-one. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they are not. And, you know, you given your extensive professional resume, that's why it is. We've talked some about your experience playing in other countries. And as we're taping this podcast, very serious situation involving Brittany Griner being detained in Russia. And she's been detained there for now weeks. As somebody who has experience living in other countries who may not have the same norms as they do here in, in the States, what was sort of your reaction when you heard about what was happening with her? I mean, I think my initial reaction was just feeling scared uh, for her because uh, you just don't know what situation she could be perfectly fine. We don't know. But at the end of the day, it's the we don't know. That's kind of scary to me just because, you know, just with the situation that's going on with Russia and what they're doing in Ukraine, you never know the type of uh, temperature that those people have 
uh, right now as far as their behavior goes or whatever. You, you just never know. Um, you know, it's a very sensitive subject uh, right now just with how people are behaving now. Uh, so you get kind of scared just because she is an American. Uh, she doesn't look like the normal female that, that they typically see. Uh, so, you know, I just think that I got really scared. My heart goes out to her. I pray she's okay. Uh, I pray that she's let loose, uh, here in, you know, the next day or so, uh, and that she's returned safely, uh, just because you just never know, you know, the uncertainty of being in a foreign country and being imprisoned. Uh, I've, I've never experienced that obviously. So I, I don't know. Uh, I couldn't even imagine maybe what she's dealing with, but I just, I pray that she's okay. Uh, were you ever as an American, you know, when you played overseas, were you aware or how aware were you of that? There's certain things that might fly in the United States that would not fly where you were. And what was maybe some of those differences that you had to adjust to? Well, um, it's never just been something that I've had to adjust to. But I, I mean, obviously, a lot of places that you go, um, they may not have the same like support that the United States has on just LGBTQ. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think a lot of people who have been to Russia or have not or just know just some history, you know, that they don't agree with that over there. They're not supportive of that. Um, so that makes the Brittany Griner situation just even more sensitive because you don't know how they're going to treat her just because of who she is. So the, I think that that's one of the things that I can remember being such a difference. Uh, just, you know, a lot of countries don't don't agree with a lot of things that that we are supportive of or have laws for in America. That's uh, the biggest difference. Yeah, I mean, because I even wonder from a free speech standpoint is that we're used to being able to be openly critical of our government. Yeah. But over a lot of countries, they don't play that. So yeah. I don't know if, if you felt like you had to edit yourself while you were overseas in any way. Um, I never felt like I had to edit myself um, because I was always passionate about the fact that I love being an American because of how free we are. Uh, but they are definitely, I think they understood my passion because they are passionate about their country. A lot of the European countries that I've been to are very, very passionate about their country. So they always speak very highly of that. Um, so I never had to edit it because they understood where my passion came from. I was just blessed to be around people that, that understood that. Um, that it was just the same. We are just from two different places, but we're both passionate about where we come from. Is there any food that you miss from either of the countries that you played in that you don't get a chance to regularly enjoy in the States? Not really. I cooked a lot, but the, I, I can remember there was this one dessert that I ate and it's simple. It was like some cottage cheese and some strawberry puree. It was just, I could never make it the way that they made it in Latvia. It's in between that and a dessert that one of my teammates' mom, she used to make me. They're called Oh the Rigas. And it's like a it's a breaded dessert with something in the middle of it. I have no idea what it was, but I can remember her mom um, making those for me before I left Latvia for the last time. But if I had to say I missed something, it's those two desserts because I'm a I have a sweet permanent sweet tooth. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we're going to roll into a game that I play with every guest that appears on the podcast. This is where the controversy happens. I'm just <laughs> warning you right now. OK, the game is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. It's very simple. I give you two choices. And you have to make a choice. You don't get to squirm out of it. We have to know what is your honest opinion about something, Sydney. So I'm not going to take it easy on you, just so you know. All right, right out the gate. 
Jordan or LeBron? Oh, man. Okay. Jordan. Look at that. Okay. You answered that confidently like Jordan. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I love me some LeBron, but Jordan just did everything to me. Like he was defense. Obviously, I'm defensive minded. So seeing Jordan play defense, that's that's just my guy. LeBron. And he was defensive player of the year. So, yes, makes sense. Exactly. LeBron can can bully everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Maya Moore or Diana Taurasi? Diana Taurasi. I I think, too, because. Is it the attitude? Yes. I just I love the she's a dog. And I love that. Yeah, she is. Mm. we talking about your girl Big Lotto here. Big energy or go crazy? Go crazy. I love me some Big Lotto, but <laughs> go crazy was like a summer anthem. Like it was just, it was just lit. And since you are the foremost authority on Nicki Minaj, final question, Anaconda or Bees in the Trap? Bees in the Trap. The beat just went too hard <laughs> on that one. <laughs> Listen, now that you've opened up this I guess a a little bit of a conversation piece has been opened up with you and and Nicki Minaj. I mean, is there going to be a meetup, a link up? Like, is something going down? Listen, I I hope it's a link up. (laughs) Nicki, if you're listening, I would I would just love to meet her just to talk to her. I just saw her uh, a snippet of her uh, podcast or kind of interview with Joe Budden. Yes. um, With her whole faceless uh, comment that she made or the quote that she made. And I just want to sit down and talk to her. I'm probably going to start saying some of the lyrics I know from all of her songs back in the day. I'm going to be a super fan girl. So, Well, it's coming. We'll speak it into existence. Well, listen, Sydney, thank you so much for taking time out to join me. I know you're busy with coaching. And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast with the, the tournament kind of right upon us. And I think just so many women just really appreciate it the way you handled that situation because, uh, there's a lot of us that um, have felt that frustration when you're being policed by other people who don't know you. And so I thought you handled it very, very gracefully. Thank you. I, I think I handled it the only way I knew how. <laughs> All right. Well, keep on being unbothered. All right. Sydney is going to get out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. In this political cycle, there have been very few issues that Republicans and Democrats can agree on. And one of those issues surfaced recently. And fuck it, I'm bothered. The Senate recently passed a bill to end that silly ass tradition where we turn our clocks back in the fall. And if it passes in the House, the country will officially be on daylight savings time all year round in 2023. Now, let me be clear. I am a thousand percent for this. The whole setting the clocks back or forward always seemed silly to me. And when I did some research, I realized the only reason we even engaged in this silliness is because of, you guessed it, capitalism. We set the clocks back because storefront businesses didn't like the fact it was getting dark at 3 p.m. An exaggeration, but you get my drift. They felt like people were less inclined to stay out to shop when it was dark even when technically it was still early in the day. As a side note, I think it's fair to say that with most traditions in this country, they either trace back to two things, slavery or capitalism. But I digress. Part of the reason this was such a silly tradition is because there are some states that don't even move their clocks at all, one time all year round. 
But as much as I support the end of fall back, it's a slap in the face that of all the issues that this Congress can agree on, it's something as trivial as daylight savings time. Can't agree on protecting voting rights. Can't agree on erasing student loan debt. Can't agree on any semblance of police reform. Can't agree on reproductive rights for women. Can't agree on pay equity. Can't agree on ending white supremacy. Can't agree on fair sentencing. Can't agree on these critical race theory bans being a shameless racist dog whistle. Won't even think about reparations just to continue to study it without any real intention on giving justice to the descendants of the enslaved. Can't agree on any of the important shit. None of the shit that truly matters. None of the shit that actually helps us to nurture America's soul. None of the things that will leave this country in a better place for the present and future generations. Lawmakers can certainly walk, chew gum, and rub their bellies at the same time. But the disappointing part is that we have a political system that is unfixable and insistent on stifling progress to preserve the ruling class. And as much as I am pro ending setting these clocks back, I'd much rather live in a country where we weren't setting progress back at every turn. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Spry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours. Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs> this sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 75 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live. It. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live. It. You don't want to miss it.